Welcome to the Dermatology Interest Group Association podcast, or DIGA podcast, where we talk about everything from how to become a stellar dermatology applicant to interesting topics in dermatology. From research advice to interviewing tips, you will be prepared to follow the path to become a world-class dermatologist. This episode is a continuation of our fellowship-focused mini-series, which highlights each of the fellowship opportunities within the field of dermatology. In this episode, we talk with Dr. Kayla McNeese, a board-certified dermatologist and Mohs surgeon. Today, I'm your host, Austin Black. See you on the skin side. All right, everyone, welcome back to the show. Today, we are joined by Dr. Kayla McNeese. Dr. McNeese is a board-certified fellowship-trained Mohs surgeon, as well as a general dermatologist. We are super excited to have her on the show today to continue along with our fellowship-focused series. Without further ado, Dr. McNeese, if you wouldn't mind introducing yourself, that would be great. Absolutely. My name is Kayla McNeese, and as mentioned, I'm a board-certified dermatologist as well as a board-certified Mohs surgeon. I'm originally from Abilene, Texas, attended undergrad at Abilene Christian University, I did my medical school at UT Houston, now known as McGovern. I did my internship at a transitional year in Indianapolis at a program called St. Vincent's Hospital. I did my dermatology residency at Vanderbilt in Nashville, and I did my Mohs Fellowship in Macon, Georgia at a private practice affiliated with Mercer and the Medical College of Georgia. I now am in private practice in Houston, Texas at Bel Air Dermatology, and I've been there over three and a half years. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for for being here with us today. Um, And we'll just get right into it. So first question, and we like to start out with this is, why dermatology? I know it's kind of a straight to the gut punch and a pretty broad question, but what led you to dermatology? No, absolutely. Well, I would have to say that when I was an undergrad, I wasn't sure if I wanted to go into medicine or international business. And so I actually did some international medical work in Zambia, Africa. And while I was there, we participated in a traveling clinic. So basically we would, you know, uh, load up about 50 Americans and we'd join with about 50 Zambian nurses and physicians. And we'd go from village to village, kind of setting up temporary clinics, if you will. And when I was there, I noticed that there was a lack of imaging. There were no labs. Uh, Everything was done based on visual diagnosis, looking at something and either making a diagnosis or at least putting it in a certain camp. You know, this is malignant. This is likely autoimmune. This is allergic, uh, et cetera. And so with that in mind, I wanted to do international work, international medicine going forward. And I figured, well, if I did dermatology, I would have this, you know, superpower of visual diagnosis skills that would serve me kind of, you know, all throughout my life. And as I um, help, you know, doctor and, and provide medical care to others in areas where resources, mainly lim- uh, labs and imaging were limited. So you like the aspect of you weren't really required to have, you know, fancy x-ray machines or MRIs or a blood lab to run your test to kind of make these diagnoses. Um, right. Is that kind of what you're getting at? Perfect. Absolutely. I mean, it's obviously wonderful in America that we have access to all of these things to kind of nail down a diagnosis. But where I was, it's truly like the sticks, right? So you've got grass huts and motor roads and people walking around without shoes. um, And your resources are incredibly limited. And so 
really and truly, it's, it's, it's devastating and sad, but you take a history, you do a clinical exam to the best of your abilities, but then at the end of the day, it's really uh, your experience. Um, and, you know, medical knowledge based on history and clinical exam that helps kind of dictate the kind of care these patients receive. And in dermatology, I mean, that's something that we hone and perfect every single day. It's visual diagnosis, um, a little less focus on the history. Um, you know, in dermatology, we largely, you know, based on clinic, clinical exam, but um, all of it is really, really helpful when you're out in the sticks or in, in resource limited areas. Yeah, I can imagine that that would be, like you mentioned, a very useful tool to have um, in those settings. Is is that something you've continued to do to this day to make those prior, those trips a priority and kind of get back out into those areas where the, the technology is a bit more limited? Absolutely. In September, I actually went back to Zambia through a program called Hands of Hope. And I got to work alongside a family medicine physician. So she and I sat next to each other. And between the two of us, it was fantastic, right? So she was, you know, rock star at the you know, oral history. And I was a rock star at the clinical exam. And so um, it really, like, I, it was exactly what I was hoping for. My visual diagnosis skills, I mean, definitely had some limitations. Like I said, she was a little bit better with, like, you know, the history side of, you know, like internal things, but, it, you know, a lot of the things that we deal with in dermatology do have some kind of physical manifestations on the skin, the hair, the nails, the mucosal surfaces. There are lots of little telltale signs um, that can be so helpful in, in making a diagnosis. And so I was actually pleasantly surprised by how helpful dermatology was, um, you know, in, in resource limited areas. So. Yeah, that's awesome. So would you say with that experience, kind of going back in time, were you pretty focused or at least very interested in dermatology kind of starting medical school? I was. So with that in mind, you know, before I wasn't sure medicine or international business, when I did this kind of clinical mission work or you know international uh, trip, that's kind of what solidified medicine for me and then specifically dermatology. So I went in really strongly thinking dermatology, but secretly hoping I would pick something less competitive so that I'd have a little bit more, um, you know, a higher rate of matching, higher likelihood of ending up in a residency program in a city where I really wanted to be. But as time went by, I tried to approach every like every single clinical with an open mind, like, you know, here I am going into pediatrics, this may be my life's calling, or this may be what I love the most. Um, and, you know, as I kind of went through all of those rotations, nothing stuck out to me, nothing was, uh, nothing was as exciting as exciting as dermatology. And so, unfortunately, I still wanted to pick one of the most competitive specialties. Uh, but fortunately, it was something that I loved and got the opportunity to do. So yes, I had it in mind. Um, I didn't commit to it my first year. I like kind of kept it open. I looked for research opportunities and participated in interest groups. But I also kind of looked broadly at all the specialties, trying to give everything a fair shake just to make sure this is exactly what I loved. And with the kind of international medicine in mind, I heavily looked at internal medicine and emergency medicine because I thought those would be really helpful in those resource limited areas. And honestly, yes, those would have been good. But honestly, I, I feel like dermatology may still be the best or, you know, just right neck and neck, you know, um, I guess it really depends on the resources you have. Um, you know, Sir John for Gen Surge, which would have also been helpful. But again, those are kind of it just all depends on your resources, kind of, you know, what's helpful and what's not. So 
I, I kind of had an idea from the beginning, but I wasn't committed from the beginning. Yeah. I think, I think a lot of people that I talk to or listen to the show are probably in a similar situation. They're very, very interested in Durham, maybe a little turned off at the competitiveness of it. Of um, but I think that the idea, and, and you mentioned this, and I've, I've heard it repeated, um, go into every rotation with the idea of, I'm going to be a pediatrician if it's a pediatric rotation. If at the end of it, you don't love it, you gave it your all, and you know that, okay, I like peds, maybe I don't like peds, but I think that something else might be better suiting for me. And I think that the rotators, those that you rotate with, the attendings will will take note that you're very interested and engaged in whatever rotation you're on. And even if you don't end up going into that specialty, they'll still you know, appreciate you and think highly of you. And maybe you can go to them for a letter of recommendation if it's something um, that you connected well with. So keeping that open mind, even though you might have this little Durham voice in the back of your head, I'm Absolutely. telling you to remember Durham is there always. And remember, first and foremost, you are a physician before you are a dermatologist. And I cannot express to you how many times a day that my just general medical knowledge that I received on other rotations have served me well for my patients in dermatology because they don't just come to me for just skin things. They have a laundry list of medical conditions and you need to know about all of them and how they interact, and how they, they might play into how you manage something. Um, you know, like my transplant patients, right? So they are immunosuppressives. How does that affect their skin quality, let alone their cancer risk. Um, it's, it's every, and, and you're going to have loved ones and you're going to have patients ask you about everything under the sun. And don't be a fool to think that when you're a dermatologist, you're just a dermatologist. You are going to be a doctor first and foremost. And it is helpful to know these other uh, passive medicine because one, you can help answer questions. Two, you also will help facilitate other general care, right? You'll know when something is being either not, I don't want to say mismanaged, but sometimes patients don't know how to be advocates for themselves. And so you can listen to their past medical history. You can hear with what the, you know, the general problems they're dealing with, and you can actually be instrumental in just improving their overall healthcare by listening to their stories, stepping up, calling specialists who are not your specialty, right? And advocating for them in, in many realms. So I would encourage people to just get the most out of every rotation because it will always serve you well. You will use that knowledge. So don't blow off any rotation, take it to heart, learn what you can, because someday whatever you learn is going to help one of your patients, regardless of the specialty you're in. Right. And even in Durham with a specialty, it covers EC manifestations of so many different specialties, diseases, if you will. You see renal disease manifest on the skin. You see all these other conditions that manifest on the skin. And so knowing beyond what the just clinical manifestation in the field of dermatology is, is something that um, is, is invaluable in practicing, I'm sure, in your day-to-day. -day. And I would imagine in many specialties day-to-day, -day, knowing the overlaps between the different specialties in which the diseases manifest. Absolutely. So continuing on to your derm training, getting into residency, I'm sure that that was a stressful time, one that um, I'm sure we we're all anxiously looking forward to and hoping doesn't ever happen at the same time. But beyond that, what is the process like for matching into a Moe's fellowship? Okay, so once you are in a dermatology residency, most programs have you spend at least, you know, usually it's a three-year derm-focused residency. 
And oftentimes programs will start with some surgical experience even in the first year. Now, whether or not you actually get to do a full-fledged dedicated Mohs rotation your first year, that varies by program. So usually most dermatology residents have some surgical training their first year learning excisions, right? Basic cutting and suturing. And then once you go on to do a little bit of a, your Mohs uh, rotation, that's when you get to meet the Mohs surgeons. That's when you learn, you know, the, all the facets of Mohs surgery. And usually about that I guess first, second year is when people start deciding whether or not they want to do Mohs surgery, unless you kind of already have an idea that that's something you want to do. So once you commit to, or think you want to do Mohs surgery, you definitely want to start building relationships with the Mohs surgeons. Because in general, they are probably the faculty members with whom you spend the least amount of time, right? With the general dermatologist, you'll probably rotate with them even your first, second, third year, kind of consistently. You'll be most familiar with them. So Oftentimes, the most surgeons, you have to go out of your way a little bit to build a relationship. Now, that said, usually these dermatology programs are smaller, and it's quite easy to develop rapport and build relationships with faculty members. And so I... I have found that most surgeons are pretty amenable to, um, you know, meeting and building relationships with. They're typically trying to present at most college meetings or the ASDS, the surgical derm meeting each year. And typically the best way to kind of go about getting into Mohs surgery is to, one, establish relationships with those faculty members, ask if there are opportunities to either publish or present, especially at these um, the ACMS, American College of Most Surgery Meeting, or ASDS, or even the AAD, any opportunities you have to go to these meetings and meet other faculty members, that can be very, very helpful. And so I, I would suggest that if you, if you had the best case scenario, you would probably decide on MOS within your you know, end of your first year, beginning of your second year, you would continue to build good rapport with your local MOS surgeons. And you would hopefully have either something published or ideally present something at one of the meetings and take that opportunity at the meetings to meet multiple uh, most surgeons in that work. Now, that said, that was not my journey. Uh, I actually decided really late in the game. I decided my third year of residency. And, you know, at the beginning of my residency, I was thinking uh, I would do CTCL, cutaneous T-cell lymphoma, um, kind of complex med derm. And then as time went on, I realized that my passion was, you know, Mohs. I um, grew up sewing. I could sew before I could read or write. So my happy place was, you know, cutting and stitching, et cetera. And so I decided late in the game and I actually did very little research um, or presentations and just tried to really um, do well on my interviews because whenever you do those interviews, it's a lot about personality and fit. So because these fellowships are very limited, typically each fellowship takes one or max of two fellows. And so it's a very intimate experience, experience, you know, one fellow to one Mohs surgeon or one fellow to two or three Mohs surgeons. So you spend every single day with your Mohs mentor, if you will. And so they want to like you. And so when you go on these interviews, a lot of the times the interviews are more about personality and fit. And so that's kind of the second kind of piece to it. You know, even if you don't have the opportunity to build a lot of relationships or do a lot of uh, research or presentations, you can still do well. It's a lot about finding the right fit. And so doing your research on which programs have mentors 
that might fit your personality or work style and then really kind of honing in on getting interviews there and then really rocking the socks their socks off on the interview day uh, is really important and then depending on the program doing good follow-up you know with thank you letters etc depending on the you know the program director's preferences so there are lots of little caveats and details to it um but that to say you know of course the sooner you know the better but if you wait to the last minute not to say you won't get a spot. Perfect. And I'm sure that you as an applicant can appreciate the, maybe the effort that goes in by the program directors to make sure that they like you as a person, because I'm sure that that goes the other way for you as well. You're spending every day with them for a year and you want to make sure that there's someone that you can more than tolerate with, someone that you can vibe yeah. with and get along with and learn from. Right. And this person becomes your mentor for life. I mean, in my uh, program director, Dr. David Kent, he is almost, he's family to me. I would consider him like my pseudo father. Um, cause you're kind of in the trenches all day, every day together. And, uh, ultimately this person is who you emulate and who kind of dictates, uh, your success kind of going forward. And so it is, it's a really like wonderful and intimate kind of working relationship. And exactly at the end of the day, I feel like once you kind of make the threshold, once you get the interview, it's a lot about personality and fit past that point. Great. You kind of mentioned being in the trenches with them every day. Um, so what is a day in the life of your fellowship training look like? Sure. So we would start at 7 a.m. and we would have 10 to 15 most cases during the morning, which I'll describe in a minute. And then usually in Mo's, you don't get lunch. You just kind of work through the whole day. Although we, we snack continuously. I don't think that we don't eat. And then in the afternoons, a lot of times we'll do suture removals, wound checks, maybe some general derm, maybe a touch of, you know, cosmetic Botox or something like that. Just kind of a mixed bag in the afternoons. And so that's what we would do. My fellowship was mainly Monday through Thursday. And then on Fridays, we would do a cosmetic procedure called the Y-Lift. And of course, my little schedule, it varies depending on which program you're in. Some people completely do Mohs all day, every day. Some have a larger cosmetic component to it. Some have lasers thrown into it. It's kind of a mixed bag. And that'll also kind of dictate maybe which programs uh, generate your interest, depending on what your priorities are. Um, but back to my program. So during the morning, our 10 to 15 most surgeries, we would typically start five to six at a time. So from about eight o'clock to nine o'clock, we would start our most layers, meaning the patients would come in, we'd mark the site that we were working on. Um, I would typically numb them. And then Dr. Kent and I would take the layers, meaning we'd cut out the skin cancer. We'd put a bandage on the patient and have them sit in the waiting room while the lab processes the tissue. And during that time, they freeze it, cut it, stain it, you know, have put it on glass slides and prepare it for Dr. Kent and for me to study. And so what we would do is we would study under the microscope, looking at all the margins. So we'd look at the entire periphery and the depth, the deep margin of the specimen to see if the tumor was clear, or if we needed to go back and take more at a certain margin. And so as you can imagine, we'd start like at eight o'clock and cut the first layer. The next patient, we'd cut at 805. The next would be 810. The next would be 815. The next would be 820. And while everyone was kind of sitting with the bandage in the waiting room, that's when we'd start reading our slides. And so as we cleared them, we would start suturing or closing or teaching the patient about wound care. And then around 10 o'clock, the next wave of patients would come in. And we'd do the same thing from 10, 10 to 5 to et cetera. You get the idea. And we would do, like I said, 10 to 15 um, 
surgical cases each morning. And as you can imagine, you kind of just have this wave, revolving wave of taking Mohs layers while studying slides, while closing people, while meeting people and marking and then taking Mohs later. It's just, it's just this massive like wave of, of uh, chaos, really. Uh, that's why we rely heavily on our MAs to kind of dictate, I, I call them like our traffic controllers, right? Okay, Dr. McNeese, you go here. <laughs> go here, then there. Dr. McNeese, you have slides. Okay, go take those two layers and you can read your slides from the next three patients. Make sure they're in the room so that they can be closed. You know, um, you don't have to worry about that because the MAs are in charge. They, they do a really good job of um, all the traffic control. But that's kind of what the morning looks like in, in a typical Mohs unit. It's this like wonderful uh, chaos of surgery. And, and you just, I don't know, you just go with the flow and kind of keeps you busy. The mornings pass very quickly. As a result, you're, you never stop moving, which I like, right? I'm always on my feet going from room to room to room to room to room to room to lab, blah, blah, back and forth, back and forth. I never stop. Um, and before you know it, it's like one o'clock. And usually most of those most surgery cases are finished anywhere from noon till about three, kind of depending on the complexity. And then, you know, within those time periods, you're kind of working in suture removals, which are quick and easy or wound checks, which are also quick and easy. And what I mean by wound checks is sometimes we'll allow wounds to heal by themselves. We won't put stitches in. That's called second intent healing. And the body is amazing at this. And in certain locations, like on the lower legs or certain areas like the conchal bowl of the ear or um, anywhere like the nasal alar groove, those areas heal beautifully just on their own without stitch work. And so oftentimes we'll see patients at the one to two week mark post Mohs surgery, just to make sure that everything is granulating well, healing well, maybe to do a little debridement of exudate just to make sure that optimum healing is, is achieved. Does that answer the question? It's a, that's kind yeah. of a, a chaotic question, but to describe the mass chaos that is a Mohs unit um, is difficult, but, but I, again, it's so fun. I love it. Um, this is a massive like symphony of, <laughs> you know, surgery and skin cancer <laughs> removal and artistry going on all at the same time. Right. And you mentioned the the pathology side of it, so where you will go in and read the slides. Um, Correct. Did you ever consider dermatopathology? Is that something that kind of overlaps with Mo's a bit in that regard? So, so I, in my mind, they don't overlap too much. Yes, you're still reading the pathology, but I'm really trained only to read tumors. So I don't do all of the crazy rashes um, and things like that. Um, the reason I didn't consider derm path is I am an extreme extrovert. So to sit behind a desk in a microscope and be quiet would probably kill me. So I need constant human interaction and activity. And so I think derm path is a wonderful specialty. Um, and it fits certain personalities beautifully, especially because it can be a great balance between the go, go, go extroverted. I don't know, like, how would you say this? Like the, the extreme socialness of general dermatology, which is in general, a lot of talking and a lot of interacting. It can be a nice balance to general dermatology and most surgery. Um, but I feel like for those extreme extroverts, um, derm path may not be, um, as attractive. So yeah, I can I, I see that for sure. <laughs> yeah, I see they're a little bit similar, right? Like I read tumors, um, but that's just like a very like small, probably the most important part of what I do in my surgery. But as far as time, um, that's like the smallest part of it. And um, 
And so the majority of it is interacting with my staff and with my patients, which is what I like. Um, for those who would like a little more balance, um, I think Derm Path is a great option for, for, for those kind of people. Sure. I definitely see that. Speaking a little bit of the balance, and you mentioned this a bit when talking about your day-to-day fellowship trading schedule. Um, kind of where you're at today, is your clinic strictly Mo's? Do you still see gender? Do you see cosmetic term? Kind of what does that balance look like for you today? Right. So my actually, my practice now emulates a lot what I did in fellowship. So I do Mo's Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday mornings. In the afternoons, it's a mixed bag of just benign excisions. And by that, I mean, if I'm excising lipomas or cysts or dysplastic nevi, which translates to abnormal moles. And then I do a handful of, you know, suture removals, wound checks, and then a handful of cosmetics. I, I don't do nearly as much cosmetic dermatology as I used to. I'm mainly limited to toxin. I have two other cosmetic dermatologists in my practice who are excellent. Um, this is, that's their passion. And so I leave a lot of the filler and laser work to them. And so I basically do most Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday mornings mixed bag of, you know, benign excisions, suture removals, wound checks, and general derm in the afternoons. And then on Thursdays, uh, I usually do general derm in the morning and the mixed bag in the afternoon. And then some Thursdays I do just excision day. Uh, There are a lot of people who want cysts and lipomas out. Uh, A lot of plastic surgeons now refuse to do them um, just for reimbursement reasons. And also a lot of times plastic surgeons will do them in the OR, which a lot of these are tiny little cysts or tiny little lipomas and to bring someone to the OR is really overkill. So it's kind of a good niche for uh, derm surge to do these. And even general dermatologists can do these, um, which I think is a great skill set to maintain. Um, even if you don't do most surgery is, is keep your excision skills up. So some, some Thursdays I just do an excision day where I'll do 10 to 15 benign excisions. And those are actually probably the most relaxed of the days that we go through. Um, my, my team really loves our excision days. They just flow well. They're relatively easy compared to Mo's and general dermatology. Um, and they're of a great service to patients who, you know, have a hard time finding a plastic surgeon or a general, general surgeon to excise these little bitty, you know, benign growths that bother them so much, but aren't, you know, life-threatening or medically, you know, medically necessary to remove. Yeah, perfect. Do you do you enjoy that balance where you have modes and then some gender and the excision day like you mentioned? Or do you feel yeah, like I, <laughs> I mean to be honest, surgery is my passion. I that's what I love. But I think it's very important to maintain the skill set that I worked so hard to build and and to learn. And with the fact that I want to do international medical work, I think it's important to keep that, that skill set up. Um, plus patients are going to ask you about general derm, whether you're a surgeon or not. And I think it would be pretty embarrassing for them to ask you a general derm question only for you to say, you know what? I, uh, I only do surgeries. I really don't know anymore. You know, I don't, that's, that's just not how I want to operate as a physician. So in my personal opinion, I think it's important to maintain at least a little bit of your general derm skill set. Yeah. Keeps, keeps you sharp. Keeps you yep. remembering the things you worked hard to learn um, previously. Exactly. So is there, I kind of asked this question to a lot of the, the guests I have, but is there a specific 
condition or maybe in your case like a suturing technique or a slap technique or something that gets you really excited or that you really enjoy doing or love to see um, come into the clinic yeah okay so like something that I like to well one thing that I think is underrated in dermatology I think this is where an answer to your question. So I love a running subcuticular stitch for top stitches um, for anything below the chin. So what this is basically, you know how a lot of times scars will be lines, dots on either side of them. And those dots come from the tension of the top stitches. So like a regular suture or even a fancy top suture, like a horizontal mattress suture can sometimes leave those dots on this on either side of the scar line based on the tension um, on the epidermis. And so what I like to do typically is a running subcuticular stitch, which basically buries that top stitch and keeps the tension or keeps dots from forming on either side. So essentially you do your deeps to close the wound and for your epidermal closure, you have this little suture that's kind of slithered up like a little snake right up under the top layer of skin to approximate the epidermis. And the reason I like it is one, patients like the way it looks. When you finish, you really can't see anything other than just a little line and a little bit of an elevation in the skin. So it looks pretty. Like when they walk out the door, they're very impressed, right? It doesn't look barbaric. You don't, they don't look like Frankenstein. And then I typically remove them, although you don't have to. And it's really easy to remove. So it's, I want to say it's almost fail-proof, almost fail-proof for your MAs to remove it. And so it ensures like a, an easy suture removal, which patients are very impressed by. And then as far as healing goes, all the patient has is a line. They don't have those ugly dots on either side. And so I think these scars are beautiful. And unfortunately, I feel like not a lot of dermatologists do these. Actually, a lot of, I don't think I've ever seen even a plastic surgeon. It, it, of course, I haven't seen every plastic surgeon. I'm just saying, this is not something a lot of people do. Um, but it's really, really lovely. And a lot of times people don't do it because it takes a little bit more time to execute, but if you do enough of them, they become fast for you. And so I think I get excited because they look great coming out. They look good at suture removal and patients are like so wildly impressed that they don't have dots on either side of their scar line. Um, and I know that's something silly to not get super excited about, but I just, I don't see them done very often. And they look fantastic. So I feel like that's such a nerdy, nerdy answer. But I strongly encourage all of you future uh, surgical dermatologists to learn this running subcuticular stitch for epidermal approximation of scars. And like I said, I do it almost, almost exclusive, exclu exclusively for any scar below the chin. The exceptions to that would be in areas of super high tension. Um, you probably want to do just regular top stitches because if you're running subcuticular, particular busts, you're without a top stitch, right? So in areas of high, high tension, you do want to use interrupted sutures so that if one busts, you've got multiple others to kind of keep the wound closed and to reinforce. Um, I also will just do regular sutures for patients who don't want to come back for suture removal. So for some of our patients, they don't care where they come from long distances and they'd rather have their local doctor remove sutures. And so with those, you know, those situations, I'll typically just do a, a simple interrupted suture and explain to them the difference in the cosmetic outcome and, and just kind of give the patient that option. So does that answer your question? Is that like a... Yes, that's that's perfect. And I would expect that um, very much coming from a, a surgeon like yourself, uh, getting excited about a suturing technique. Um, I think that that's great and something that we can all put away in our back pockets to 
leave our patients with some prettier scars later on down the road. Mm -hmm. So wrapping up here towards the end and a bit of a, an introspective and challenging question, if you will, but what is one thing that kind of where you're at now in your life, looking back to your past self, whether during medical school, during residency, what is something that you wish maybe you would have done differently or reassured yourself something, um, if that makes sense? Absolutely. So this is a really hard question because the answer is this, is I wish I would have been less intense. So I am an intense person at baseline. And most dermatologists, well, actually, most med students are at baseline, especially most uh, future dermatologists. And I think there's a way where you can balance and embrace that intensity without making yourself miserable, sacrificing your life and killing yourself. And I wish I would have found a little bit better balance. So what I mean is I feel like I was, I mean, it's easy for me to say now that I am exactly what I want to be a dermatologist and most surgeon. But looking back, I feel like I would have been just as successful if I just taken the edge off, right? Like I was worried sick. I mean, literally could not eat my entire fourth year of med school because I was so scared about getting into dermatology. And um, I wish instead of living in fear and anxiety, I would have had more self-confidence and more excitement towards the process. Because let's be real, they they're going to, so it seemed like an impossible feat to get into dermatology, but there are hundreds of spots and someone's got to get it. It might as well be you, right? And I definitely feel like operating from a place of confidence and success and excitement always positions you better than operating from a place of defeat and fear and potential loss. So I definitely think you should be, you know, um, thoughtful about the process. I think you should definitely be proactive. I think you should put your best foot forward. I think you should play it smart. But I think that looking back, I wish I would have given myself a little bit more grace and mercy to relax a little bit, enjoy the process, believe in myself and not be so stressed and miserable. And that's really hard I mean, like if I had heard myself say those words, my fourth year of med school, like I wouldn't have listened to myself, frankly. <laughs> so it's really hard to say, but I'm pretty sure that I would have, you know, ended up in the same place and maybe even handled things better, maybe even done some things better. Right. Um, just operating with less anxiety and um, more confidence. I will also say this personally, I wish I would have Ooh, this is a good one. I wish I would have drawn very strict boundaries around my work life, meaning I would sit and I would just study until I went to bed. I wish instead I would have set time limits. Okay, listen, I am going to study my heart out for these next two hours, and then I'm going to stop and I'm going to have a break and I'm going to enjoy my evening. Instead, I would just sit there and just keep going and keep going and wear myself out. And I found out the quality of my study was not as good as if I would have just dedicated, you know, okay, two hours and then I can stop and, or 30 minutes and then I can go walk the dog and then I'll do 30 minutes again. And then I can watch TV for 20, you know, to me, I think that would have been helpful instead of just like, you know, beating myself up and torturing myself over these extended periods 
I think quality over quantity would have been something helpful for me personally. Um, so yeah, and then I guess lastly on the note, I would have given myself a little bit more um, personal time to build relationship and appreciate friendships. So I, I guess that's kind of a convoluted saying, uh, just like convoluted way of saying like, calm down, <laughs> take a deep breath, <laughs> balance, don't be afraid to take breaks, you know, really focus on quality over quantity and try to like maintain some kind of semblance of, you know, um, normalcy in your personal and social life. Perfect. I think that's, that's great advice, especially like kind of, as you mentioned, I, I feel like most in med school probably have a very similar mentality and can probably benefit from that exact advice. So I think that that's something, uh, very, very keen for our audience. And that's something that we can, myself included, definitely, uh, try a little bit better at is having that balance and enjoying the process, even though at times it can be more stressful than we might like. It's true. It's really hard when you're in the, honestly, give yourself some grace no matter where you're at, because when you're in the fight, it's really hard to let go. Um, so I just, I would just say, be gracious to yourself. Honestly, something that I'm trying to learn to do now is to take care of myself. And I do find that the more I take care of myself, you know, like health and sleep and, you know, happiness, and, you know, in interpersonal personal relationships, the better things go, the better my outcomes, the faster I work, right? And so I know you hear it a million times and it's really hard to let go. But as someone who is trying to learn it now, as someone who wished she had been told this, like, you know, long time ago. Um, really, 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 it's okay to take time to take care of yourself and don't let anyone tell you that that's selfish or that you're being weak. Um, no, in, in, in truth, you must take care of yourself. Otherwise you cannot take care of others as someone who has come close to burning out multiple times and who's surrounded by colleagues who are burning out. Like it is essential. Learn it now. Um, prioritize your own mental and physical health. Um, and try to, yeah, try to maintain that balance. It's hard. It's hard. And if you fail at it, give yourself some grace and, um, you know, keep moving forward. We need, we need good positions out there. We need help. We need wonderful people. So just hang in there, hang in there. Perfect. Well, I think that's something great we can leave our viewers with. And um, we thank everyone for tuning in, especially we thank Dr. McNeese for being here with us today and for sharing her wisdom and encouragement for all of us hopeful future physicians one day. Thank you for joining us on this episode of the DIGA podcast. We hope you enjoyed. Please send us any questions or comments to DermInterestPod at gmail.com. This podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. 